Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Welcome to another episode of So Mind-Boggling Journeys. I'm your host, Bettina Goolsby. I'm an actor and dreamer slash creative continuing to go after my dreams. So much of this journey is just so mind-boggling, hence the title, for either reasons of utter disappointment or the manifestation beyond what I could have ever imagined. Follow along as I check in with other creatives along the way and learn what so mind-boggling things they have to say and what it's like pursuing the dream while living the in-between. Hello, listeners. Before we get started, I just want to send loving prayers and empathy to the families of the three students who recently lost their lives to a senseless shooting on the campus of the University of Virginia, my alma mater, UVA, recently. I do not know what it's going to take to do something to affect change within this country about gun control laws. I know that the anger and the devastation and the disappointment that I feel when we hear yet another story of tragedy, you know, looking down the barrel of a gun is becoming so prevalent. So I I can't even imagine what the friends and family and the larger community in these areas feel. I am so, so sorry. This episode was recorded before this event took place. Thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, I chat with Megan Stocker-Headley. We met while resident assistants at the University of Virginia. Megan is a therapist with an extensive background in art, food and wine, and movement, and she's very passionate about the most rooted aspects of being human, especially about what enables us to remain open to connection after being hurt. By learning to tolerate a fuller range of emotions without feeling at their mercy, she helps people become more regulated, more empowered, more free, and more alive. I think it's interesting that she uses techniques grounded in neuroscience, attachment theory, somatics, and mindfulness to honor the wisdom in our bodies and to help us move towards our more authentic selves, rewiring our nervous systems in a way that builds back trust with ourselves and others. She helps her patients tap into inner resources for living a life with abundance, presence, and meaning. And I'm so happy to have her here. When we were at the University of Virginia, I just remember how light she was and just how beautiful and free she was. And I loved how artsy she is and how she has brought that into every aspect of her life from working in the art world, from being a writer, from working in the food services industry, and then now in her therapy practice. Now, the reason why I brought Megan on for this episode is because, you know, we're coming out of one holiday and going right into the other. But during this time, I know that it's a source of joy to be with our families and to be with our friends and to have more of a slower pace. But I also know that it also can be a season of sadness and it can be a season of loss and it could be a season of anxiety. So in this episode, we talk about holiday and seasonal sadness. So we talk about memories. We talk about anxiety. We talk about adaptation as children. Here is Megan Stocker-Headley. So Megan, thank you. Thank you. So it's funny you said that you're still in therapy mode. And I just said on another episode, I was like, is this kind of like therapy? Like, I don't think that was the point of this season to be therapy, but is it working out to be that way? (laughs) So Megan, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. It's so interesting to be here with you right now. We just recently reconnected in person during the weekend of UVA's homecoming when I happened to be in Charlottesville. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, no, I know that I have said that I want to see Megan. I haven't seen you or hadn't seen you in so very long. And we had a period there where we like lost touch with each other. 
I'm just so glad that we have reconnected. And because I'm like, why? Why did we fall out? Not fall out. The fallout sounds like there was something that happened. We did not fall out. <laughs> but I guess, you know, just life, right? And the pandemic and then life got in the way. <laughs> right. Yeah, life got in the way. So when I think about you, Megan, and I told you this recently when I saw you that, you know, we met when we were both RAs, resident assistants at UVA. And I actually, to be honest with you, I had to think back hard because I was like, no, wait, what was that experience like? And I was like, why don't I remember it specifically? And I think I know why. (laughs) But that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about repressed memories, like why we remember certain things and we don't remember other things. But anyway, we were resident assistants at UVA and you graduated one year earlier than I did. And when I came up to New York, I guess I must have just reached out to you. Is that what happened? And then we got together. You used to work in the art world. You worked at the armory. You were working on the big annual armory show back when it was at the Park Avenue Armory. I think it's now at the Javits Center. Yeah, I moved to a lot of different places. And I think some of the shows that used to exist don't even exist anymore. No, it's like a whole different world when you did that. And you were so entrenched in that. And I feel like you used to introduce me to like a lot of really cool restaurants in the city and you became a writer and then you worked in the food industry. And so you just have such a varied background. Do you want to give the listeners just kind of like an overview of you know what that journey has looked like and felt like for you? Yeah, I mean, my dad kind of jokes that you could get whiplash looking at my resume because it has been very circuitous. But the way that I've kind of made sense of it is that like what I'm doing now, which is psychotherapy, it always had its start and it was always there in everything that I've done. And so like you say, I was in the art world when I graduated from UVA, even though at UVA, I studied neurology or neuroscience, you know, specifically psychology with biology and, you know, was fascinated by the neural mechanisms of the brain and and of behavior specifically. Then I felt like everything that I was studying had such a black and white template. I felt like there was really only kind of one way to go if I was going to be a neurosurgeon, which is kind of what I wanted to do. And psychology in and of itself kind of left a more gray area to things. And I was kind of fascinated by art and the fact that, you know, that, that I felt like art just kind of embraced, you know, the, the paradox of being human, which is that things aren't just black and white, that there are so many nuances and shades to things. And that the more that I was able to kind of tolerate and embrace nuance, I just felt happier. I felt like life just made more sense, ironically, than, than trying to kind of make sense of it in these very binary truths. And so it took me a while to to go down different paths. And I thought that it was art that I was interested in or the food that I was interested in or the words themselves when I was a writer. And really at the center of all of it, it was people. And it was people specifically who seemed to have hope and motivation to keep going, even in the face of great adversity. And that just inspired me to, you know, just to be curious. And I loved hearing people's stories. I loved when I was a writer, telling people's stories and kind of shining a light on them. And it seemed to help me kind of make more sense of my own journey. And so I feel like that's kind of where I am now, which is just sitting in the room with people and hearing their story and kind of maybe helping them, like reflecting back some of the threads that maybe they haven't necessarily 
been able to identify for themselves. And a lot of times, you know, they say that art imitates life. So, you know, of course, we're going to, you know, take this from the angle from an artist standpoint. It's like, how important is it to really, because a lot of times people will say that acting is like lying, right? And it's not being you, it's being this other person. Whereas with each character, you also have to dig within yourself and find what is similar to that character that you're portraying and also what is not similar to that character that you're portraying. And so, so much of that is you have to really go on this exploration of knowing who you are before you can kind of inform others on who this character is. Mm, How interesting. And so we had a conversation about the idea of adaptations and how when we are babies and we are birthed into this world, we all come in the same and then we quickly go into this adaptation mode based on our surroundings, our environments, our families, our conditioning, everything around us, and how that shapes us into who we become and then ultimately how that informs who we are as adults. And I thought that that was so interesting because it was one of those things where it's like, if you have to be so conscious of the reasons and the different things that adapted you in certain ways so that you can know where to go from there, know where you need to peel back the layers and know where you need to heal this and that. And I feel like that's something that you have to do actually before you even can really go on the full artistic journey is really knowing who you are at the core. Right. Like what actually drives you and what is being driven for you because of your past. I mean, this is the thing with the unconscious and with our past that I think therapy sometimes gets a bad rap, especially when we think about Freud and, you know, the kind of psychoanalytic community think often that therapy is dwelling in the past and is kind of wallowing and not necessarily living in the moment. But the thing about the past is that the less we process the past, the more that we can be sure that it's going to show up in our present and probably shape our future in some undesirable ways. Because if we're not actually Actually making conscious choices that are being led from a place of where we are in the here and now, then the choices are kind of being made for us based on what we learned we needed to adapt to in our families of origin. And so when I think about adaptations, you know, they're survival rooted. Like you say, we're all born into this world in the same way. From a biological standpoint, like humans are very, very similar. I mean, we all have the same general biological structure, neurological structure, all of that. But I mean, could our environments be any different from one another? Like, could they, I mean, imagining just how widely variable the environments that we're born into are really does kind of take the veil off of the necessity to adapt. And so those adaptations are necessary, but where they become problematic is when we over rely on them or believe that we still have to rely on them and that we don't have a more flexible or that we don't have access to more choices than we do. We think that there's only this one choice because that's the way it was. And so I kind of like to think of looking at adaptations and reviewing the adaptations that we've created or that we've used to survive almost as like updating our operating system or, you know, for the fashion minded, it would be kind of like, you know, updating your closet. And I often liken therapy to cleaning out a closet because it's one of those situations that like, you know, that the outcome is going to be amazing and you want to do it. 
you know, you very much want this clean, organized closet where everything makes sense and everything is accessible and everything fits and looks great on you. And, you know, it lets you kind of come out of the room, your best version of yourself. But the process of doing it can be really messy and really painful and really confusing sometimes really uncomfortable. It just feels like it just feels super uncomfortable. And it makes you question if that's where you're supposed to be, because it doesn't feel good and easy and with flow. Right, right. And then having somebody else witness it too. Like, you know, imagine like just even doing like actually cleaning out your closet with somebody there, you know, is there going to be judgment when I pull out these like old cowboy boots that I had, or, you know, all these kinds of old versions of ourselves are, are having a witness for the first time, maybe. And we have to not only make sense of it ourselves, but also maybe I feel like we need to explain it to another you know, why we made the choices that we did. And so it can be incredibly confronting, but it is actually having that other, that empathic witness that really helps the process be bearable. And, you know, there are those moments where just like in cleaning out a closet where you get everything out and you're like, oh gosh, why did I do that? You know, I should have just left it. It wasn't that bad. Maybe, you know, I could have lived with it. It looks fine. I just kind of want to put it all back. But slowly but surely, you know, you get to kind of turn things over in your hands and try on, you know, these adaptations or kind of psychological clothing to see if it still fits. And if it doesn't, then, you know, maybe that doesn't serve me anymore. And I can, I can try on something else. What if you don't realize that what you're doing, what your behavior is, is an adaptation versus like just a part of your personality? Hmm. Interesting. Is there an example that might be easy for us to dig into? This is now. This is what I have to get. I'm putting you on the spot. Like this is this therapy. No, and this is this is good because this is what I feel like. This is what's holding me back in my acting. I feel like because I'm trying to just make sense of certain things, and it's almost like I'm trying to fill in pieces of the puzzle. It's almost like I have to be honest about some things about me. And I have to, for me, I have to remember. I feel like I don't remember a whole lot. I feel like I've been in such survival mode that I have been, I've disassociated. I think I have a lot of disassociation. So a lot of times when there's like different exercises that pop up or I have to relate to a character in a certain way, it's like there'll be something in me that is super intrigued or drawn to that character, but I can't connect the dot. And I'm like, why, why? there's something there. I can tell something's there. And I'm like, well, why is it? I feel that there's something there, but I can't connect that dot, you know? And especially if it's like a scene where there is some sort of, I guess like trauma, I guess I should say, if there's some sort of trauma or there's a certain level of vulnerability that has to be expressed, it's like my body will kind of freeze up. And I'm like, now why am I What's freezing up here? Maybe what this character is going through isn't my exact, I haven't gone through that exact situation, but maybe I can kind of create a, draw a parallel, but it still is, it's it's almost like a wall comes up and it's like, it's a hard wall and it just blocks. And I go into like protection mode and I'm like, I can't really have that with my acting. (laughs) You know, the whole point of acting is like to be completely free and to be completely open and to be completely fluid. You know, my hairstylist said this when I saw her last. We were talking about another actor's work. We were watching a really poignant scene on Key Valley between two actors. And it was a very hard emotional scene. It was a very triggering scene. 
she was saying how, you know, one of the main actors was his performance was so beautiful because he was so fluid. And I was thinking, yeah, how did how was he able to just release any type of, you know, like, for instance, he was a rapper. And so he had to put together or put front a very hard exterior, kind of like what you would think a rapper would be. But he actually had this really, this other side of him where he connected with men, you know, sexually and emotionally. And that was a part of himself that he had to hide. So there were very intense scenes. There was like a very intricate, very open love scene with another man and his ability to just be so present in that moment and just so connected and just like the bravery that it took to really kind of give over to that character, you know, that's still very hard for me. And that where I am in my journey right now, I feel like that's the part that's holding me back. Like I have to kind of like get there. And so I'm trying to figure out why are these things holding me back? Like, why do I care so much about whether it's what this person thinks or, you know, this thing I can't remember or this thing that happened to me when I was a child that's kind of triggering right now in this scene. And I'm just like, I want to be able to clean out those cobwebs. Like, I feel like it's like a lot of other stuff going on where I need to be really clear headed and present in the moment and open free with my emotions. Well, it's it's interesting. I'm so glad to hear that example because I feel like it ties into exactly what we're here to talk about today. And the fact that like thinking your way through it isn't working comes as no surprise because the problem doesn't live in your thoughts. It is in your body and emotions are in your body. And all of these memories that you talk about and disassociation is an adaptation in and of itself. It was the way that you learned to adapt to overwhelming situations, to situations that would have, you know, quote unquote, disabled you if you were to stay fully in your experience in those times. So just to back up a little bit to talk about memories, I think that, you know, even the word repressed memories or the phrase repressed memories comes, you know, with a bit of a caveat sometimes because there are a lot of debates about whether they actually even exist. And is this something, you know, that is a misnomer? I think of repressed memories, you know, with a definition that clarifies, you know, that debate, which is that they're implicit memories as opposed to explicit memories. And so the difference, implicit memories basically is learning that you did without realizing that you were learning it. So some an example of that would be, you know, you you get on a bike and you know how to ride a bike, but you don't necessarily remember having learned the steps to riding a bike. You just know how to do it. Whereas explicit memory, you know, tends to be, you know, something that's kind of able to be consciously recalled. Implicit memory cannot be consciously recalled. It can only be triggered. And that was the word that you use, you know, where something triggers you and what happens in response to it is disassociation. And the reason for it is that it's not always that because the example of riding a bike, obviously, that isn't necessarily a traumatic memory in and of itself. So there are some implicit memories and implicit learning that doesn't have a traumatic element to it. But traumatic memories and memories that are made encoded in our brains before the age of three are nonverbal. They live in a different part of our brain. And so because traumatic memories usually involve a cascade of stress hormones, 
they don't actually get encoded in our hippocampus. And in our hippocampus is the area of the brain where, you know, explicit memory lives, where memory that you can kind of pull up with conscious recall. Whereas traumatic memories are mediated by the amygdala, which is the part of our brain that is kind of our threat detector, the part of our brain that signals danger. And when our brains are flooded with cortisol, like they're just not basically, you know, that whole part of our brain that is the thinking part of the brain isn't even online. And remembering too that what I said a minute ago that prior to the age of three, that part of your brain isn't online either. And so that there's a lot of reasons why somebody's childhood might be fuzzy. And it's not always because the memories are traumatic and repressed, but because a lot of learning is done before the age of three. And so kind of once just taking a break, because that's a lot of information. I mean, when you think about what I've just said, like what comes up for you when you think about maybe some of the reasons why there might be a block connecting to a character that, you know, might require some emotional delving? Well, I think initially I've just been like, you know, well, why don't I remember? So let's use that example of the riding the bike, right? It's like, like I will remember how to ride the bike, but it's like, well, why don't I, why isn't this tied to a memory? Why isn't this tied to like, you know, a parental figure, you know, taking me out on a sunny day and there was a blue bike right there and I got on and I fell off or I stumbled, but then they encouraged me to get back on. Like, I'm like, why aren't there little memories like that? And I feel like it's easier to detect that there's something that wasn't great there. Cause this is the thing. It's not one of those things where it's like, oh my God, my whole childhood was like a disaster and it was like abusive. And it's like, and I remember specific moments of tra- you know, trauma happening and abuse happening. It's not that, I don't know. Like I can't even make sense. All I know is that when I have to delve deep into a character's backstory, for instance, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, what was their backstory with their parents? And like, how old were they when they had their first- kiss and how old were they when their parents got divorced and how old were they when this person said something to them on the playground and that caused them then to think this about themselves it's like when I'm doing that homework for the character when I then try to make a parallel with mine you know because that to do that you kind of also then tap into your own and I'm like why don't I remember a lot of these really significant first moments I'm like, what is that? Like, is there something there? Is it because I do know that, and we talked about this too, that the body, even if the mind doesn't remember certain things, the body remembers everything, that the body records and stores everything that's happened to you and protects you from it and protects you from it. And I'm like, why? So what I'm trying to do now between, you know, yoga and meditation is I'm like, oh, I want my body to feel comfortable letting my mind remember. And so I'm like, let me do all these things because I want my conscious mind to know, hey, this is a safe space. And I feel like this is like holding me back like none other. And it's, it's time to kind of move on from this. So I'm like, let's, let's remember what happened. Let's remember it very clearly. Well, it's interesting too, because with disassociation and, you know, just to kind of maybe give a definition to that, I mean, it's essentially disassociation is that protective adaptation that you're talking about that kind of allows your physical body to keep on going, even when it's flooded. So it chooses what to attune to and what to to not pay attention to. And so it actually kind of preserves you in times that would be potentially overwhelming by just cutting you off from the overwhelming stimulus. So it's what that looks like, you know, in day to day 
life could be just, you know, maybe that, that experience. And I'm sure we've all had where, you know, we drive somewhere and we get there and then, but then we think like, gosh, I don't even remember getting in the car or driving. Yeah. Yeah. The route that I took. Right. That's so true. Mm -hmm. Right. And that can be, you know, that, that really is sometimes the fact that we, that we live in our heads and that society very much values people that live in their heads. And, you know, even from when we think about our evolution as humans, you know, we kind of give more credence to our processes of our cognitive cortex. You know, the big, you know, paradigm shift in therapy has been cognitive behavioral therapy because, you know, we should just be able to change our thoughts and then that will just help us, you know, change everything. And, you know, if we can just control our thoughts, then we can have the life we want, but it's just not that easy. Because, you know, we are rooted in survival. We're evolutionarily wired for survival. So therefore, we're evolutionarily wired to pick out and predict and and kind of have a negativity bias to pay more attention to what could potentially go wrong in a situation rather than what could go right. And so there are all sorts of ways that we forget that we are biological creatures first and foremost, and that that is how we experience the world. And I am very much in my practice, a proponent of what's called bottom up processing rather than top down processing, because we experience things from the world, you know, from our bodies, you know, through our senses. And what chronic disassociation does is, you know, you could think of it as chronic disembodiment. It can be kind of walking around in a fog and, you know, being up there in your head and always thinking and, you know, like believing our thoughts because that's the voice in our head. And so of course they're true, you know, but what we're kind of losing access to in all of those moments is a large part of our experience, which is our sensory based experience. And it's also the part of our experience that is in the present because, it, you know, when our body is, is present, you know, then our, it, our senses are present and we are paying attention to what is in the here and now, not what was in the past and not what is in the future. And yet we all kind of tend to either look 10 steps ahead or ruminate on all the things we've done wrong in the past and avoid, you know, being fully present. So when I hear you talk about your experience of having difficulty connecting, like there could be lots of reasons that have to do with, you know, having been emotionally overwhelmed or not necessarily being safe to be present in, you know, in the face of emotionally overwhelming stimuli. But it could also be the fact that it was never necessarily encouraged to be tuned in to what was happening right in front of you. If there was no caregiver or friend, how would someone learn to eat mindfully or to kind of notice what a beautiful sunny day it is or what, you know, the feeling of, you know, one fabric on your skin feels like other than another fabric. Like those kinds of things are kind of luxurious to be able to stop and pause. Like that assumes that there's nothing that needs your attention more than being able to look around and take in your surroundings. Yes. And you know, that's something I really admire in people and I, I can, I, and I can notice it. I'm like, wow, I can tell when people are in the moment and I'm like, wow, I so admire that. And I'm like, how do they 
how do they do that? I mean, I, I love studying it in like babies, but it's easy for them because they don't have a whole lot of history that, you know, or a whole lot of things on their mind, right? So they're able to, you know, there's not a whole big catalog behind them, right? It's like they, they're in the moment because they're collecting data now. And they're a, they're a giant ball of need. And a giant ball of once, like never, never once would you, would a child be like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't cry, you know, because then I might inconvenience somebody or maybe, you know, maybe I'm not actually hungry. Maybe, you know, I could, you know, deal, live without that bottle, you know, that I think I really want. Like there isn't that kind of, you know, that's, that's what we get into as adults, you know, where we kind of second guess what our needs are. Or as a baby just knows to kind of let its needs be known. Do you think that plays into our sense of anxiety? I feel like so many people I know right now, artists, friends, everyone has this very anxious energy about them, you know, and even if it's like people are, you know, thriving and having, you know, their best lives and, you know, getting the promotions that they want and getting the the families that they want and getting the accolades that they want and you know, they're definitely manifesting what they want for themselves. Even in the midst of that, we all seem to have this like underlying anxiety. And is it like, is that like a COVID? Is it, you know, do you think it's just related to the last two years? I don't know. You know, there's also the holidays, right? So there is that, there's that part of it as well. It's on the horizon now, but you know, just thinking about all that's going to come up with that. Yeah. Anxiety is interesting because it's actually not, you know, it's not an emotion. Well, I should say it's an inhibitory emotion. And why it's inhibitory is because usually what's beneath anxiety are all of our big core emotions, you know, like the big ones, the ones that, you know, that we grapple with, you know, that are both kind of on the positive realm and on the negative realm, you know, sadness, anger, joy, surprise, contempt, excitement, sexual arousal. I mean, those are the, the big ones that come to mind. And those core emotions, they're big. And they are emotions that we didn't go to school and learn how to navigate emotions. And it's a rare family, I would say, that models it, let alone explicitly teaches how to regulate emotions, how to, how to have you know, a, a relationship to your emotions. It's more usually emotions are something to be kind of controlled. Yes, or shunned or willed away, shunned. Yeah. Like, especially, you know, and, and anytime that, you know, we think about us as women, you know, that, you know, we're often deemed, you know, overly emotional, right? That there's kind of like a connotation to being, you know, in touch with our emotions. And then for men, you know, that, that the idea that there are only certain emotions maybe that are socially sanctioned or appropriate to be, to be felt, let alone expressed. And so there's already all of these kind of meta messages that we have around emotions that make it hard for us to, to even dwell in the emotional realm. We tend to invalidate our emotions. We invalidate other people's emotions. We have this you know, obsession with kind of comparing our suffering to decide whether or not I call it the suffering Olympics. <laughs> Yes, this suffering Olympics is so annoying. Right. And then if we withhold compassion from ourselves, then, you know, we're certainly not going to give it to anyone else. It's like we somehow have, are walking around thinking that empathy is like finite. You know, if we give it away, then there's not going to be enough for us or that maybe we don't deserve it because other people are suffering more. There's all of these ways that we kind of talk ourselves out of being able to just feel sad 
or to just feel devastated or to feel disappointed or to feel, you know, a sense of loss. It's like every single kind of script around the the pandemic was like, oh yeah, it's been really hard, but you know, everybody has it worse. Or, you know, there's just all of these ways that we kind of, you know, talk ourselves out of feeling what we're actually feeling, that our feelings aren't valid. Going back to anxiety, I mean, anxiety is essentially an inhibitory emotion because it's a ball of all of the core emotions. It's all of the core emotions collapsing on top of one another and creating this maelstrom that you wouldn't dare try to touch because it is so overwhelming, so daunting, so, you know, just impossible to kind of, you know, pick any one thing out of it. It just feels insurmountable. And so the language of anxiety tends to be, what can I do with this? How can I make this feeling stop? And what then we do and why it's inhibitory is because we immediately, instead of turning to to say like, what's under the anxiety, we actually say, how can I get rid of the anxiety? And so we start doing, we start numbing, you know, whether that's through being a workaholic and, and feeling like, you know, if we're just more productive, you know, then we'll keep anxiety at bay or, you know, we run and we, we rationalize the, like, at least when I run, you know, it just, I don't feel this like gnawing sense of dread or, you know, we, we numb with, you know, substances or, you know, we zone out and watch television, you know, name it. Like there's all sorts of, of defenses that kind of keep these feelings at bay. And so then it's inhibitory because we never actually get to the root of it. And it just becomes a cycle like it, you know, the numbing or the defenses works for a little, a little while. There's a you know, short term relief and whatever, it, whatever choice that we've made. And then we're like, oh, OK, that worked. And then we wait until the anxiety, you know, mounts again and then rinse and repeat, you know, the feeling of anxiety, the way to kind of stop that cycle is to start with a big exhale, a really kind pause and I'm slowing down. I'm noticing even in the way I'm talking right now, because it's hard. It's hard to pause because when we pause, we actually have to feel something. And if that hasn't been safe in the past, or if it's been overwhelming in the past, we might in that moment reach for something like disassociation. Might be like, nope, nope, I'm getting too close. I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch that. So if we pause and we, you know, give ourselves some soothing and, you know, and this is, this might be a very self-led practice where, you know, you kind of just almost let your, your body take over where when you take that break and you say, okay, what is it that I'm, that I'm trying to avoid here? You know, and you kind of ask yourself that kind question with curiosity, not with judgment, but with curiosity, because you have to be tender with yourself. Because these adaptations developed for a reason. And just because they are now at a point where they're not serving you doesn't mean that they're going to change overnight. And if we have the expectation that they're going to change overnight, then all we're doing is just adding more shame and adding more layers to, you know, and, and more kind of invalidating voices that aren't going to get us to where we need to be. And so the first step is really just pausing and allowing yourself the space to get curious about what you might be feeling and to resist invalidating it, to just let it be. And naming it, as silly as it sounds, like there's this little kind of quippy saying that if you can name it, you can tame it. And there's something to that. 
And it's what we do with children. And it's a lot of what we didn't have done for us. Imagine like falling off your bike and a parent and you crying, even if you don't have some you know, visible wound from falling off your bike, it was scary. So you're crying. And imagine if that, instead of that parent saying, oh, get up, you're fine. That parent said, oh gosh, ouch, that must've been really scary. And that must've really hurt. Which is so funny because I feel like what a lot of parents do in that moment is, oh, like act like it didn't happen. So then they won't even think about it. Like if the adult puts too much attention on it, then you're signaling to the child, oh, wait, I'm hurt. But he actually wasn't hurt or she wasn't actually hurt. But because they saw the adult's reaction, now they're like, ah. And so a lot of times that's kind of thought of as like, you know, kind of good parenting is to kind of like, not trick the kid, but kind of like. (laughs) Yeah, the reverse psychology. (laughs) Yeah, a little reverse psychology where you're saying, no, that, that, that let them actually take a second and feel what they feel because that's going to be something that will affect them going forward. That you want, you want people to be able to identify and feel their emotions and their feelings. Exactly. It's a foundation for self-trust. I mean, imagine if everyone to like, oh, don't cry. That didn't hurt that. I mean, how often do we say those kinds of things to children or like, oh, you're not actually hungry. Or you can't be cold or, you know, a kid that, that doesn't want to watch a scary movie. Oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. But the child's afraid and the child is hungry and the child is cold. And so anytime that, that a parent's, you know, whatever their block is to, uh, you know, to validating the feeling, probably because their own wasn't validated, essentially tells the child that they can't trust what they're feeling. And we now, you know, are doing this for ourselves, like as, you know, the, this pause and this kind of hand on the heart or, you know, just even just hand anywhere where it would feel comforting and soothing like you might do for a child. It's us reparenting ourselves and meeting the need that wasn't met when we were younger. And it's rebuilding our relationship to our trust, our self-trust. And fortunately, even if it took, you know, 50 years or 45 years or 30 years or whatever, however old you are when you, when you kind of are on a self-awareness journey, even if it took that long to veer away from trusting yourself and your emotions, it does not take that long to repair it. The reparenting process, you know, is incredibly powerful, no matter when you start and no matter you know how often we forget to do it you know that that like being kind when we're making mistakes being kind when we're growing and we're trying to relate to ourselves differently like has to be a process that is deeply compassionate and deeply patient because that's exactly what we needed that we didn't get and that's the hardest part I think, because I can hear you, even in your creative blocks, that it just feels like because you know better, because you know what needs to change, that there's like, why can't you figure it out already? If even that voice became more compassionate and more curious and more patient, imagine, you know, the, the kind of growth that could happen from that. And that, that in and of itself, that might be the, thing, the, the block that needs to be moved through is just being compassionate with myself. Right. That you shouldn't know how to do this, that you shouldn't automatically be, you know, okay, kind of inhabiting this experiences of other people, you know, when maybe you didn't get to have your own full experiences. 
where you are always in the experience of other people. So maybe your body even resists, you know, the idea of entering somebody else's experience because you never really got to fully connect to your own. So the practice of just even connecting to your own experience is incredibly healing, you know, just recognizing like when you are in your own body, like when you are oriented to your surroundings and you have the luxury, you are safe enough to be able to look around and appreciate what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you feel, and you don't have to be you know, tending to potential threats or danger or trying to figure out how to get your needs met interesting because, you know, with the holidays upon us, that of course is triggering for all of this, right? When you then go back to, you know, your familial homes or, you know, more family comes together that maybe you just see once or twice a year or whatever the situation may be for each individual. And it's so easy to fall back into our adaptations, right? Unconsciously. And so this makes it very interesting to go back and kind of like, instead of giving in to those impulses, maybe just sitting and feel, taking a pause and feeling those feelings and maybe identifying them and not react to them. And that's the part that is, I feel like that will definitely be like that, that saying that out loud and thinking about it, I'm like, oh, that feels like that would be growth. <laughs> that, that feels like that would be growth and evolution. Cause it's like, you know, for me, I'm like, why am I, you know, at this age? And it's like, I'm so easily triggered by, you know, different things that my mom will say over the holidays. And I'm just like, woman, I am like a grown woman. Like, what are you talking about? You know? So it'll just be interesting to kind of try that on where it's just like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit, I'm just going to take a pause and identify, like, you know, identify, validate what I'm feeling. And then I don't know. I don't know if there's a release that happens after that, or I guess, I guess I'll just see, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's the, that's the interesting thing about emotions is we think that the, like, that there are these big permanent states and they're not, they're information. They're involuntary. They come up in us. We cannot will them away. And so where the suffering lies around emotions tends to be the, the meta messages we have around them and the resistance we have to feeling them because we often will get stuck in an emotion because we don't let it actually kind of complete itself. It's like, I like to kind of think of emotions like a tunnel. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so if you just let the wave of the emotion happen, it doesn't have to be a directive. So it doesn't have to result in an action or a reaction of any kind. It can just be something that you notice and that you let pass. And that you use as information because that's their biological purpose was they had a root in survival. Everything does in our biological wiring. And because we're not running from tigers anymore and from predators anymore, we think, you know, that everything has to be kind of worked out in our heads because, you know, we're not those ancestors of the past. The purpose of emotion still remains the same, which is that it helps you make a decision about what should be avoided and what should be approached. So like what is something that is life affirming or survival enhancing and what would be threatening to your survival. And because we aren't running for, from tigers anymore, our emotions are so much more nuanced and they don't have the same root in survival that they once did. 
And so we can pause. So something that maybe feels like a threat to our survival isn't actually. It's just the fear of rejection or it's just kind of a dig, you know, that feels like, oh, that hurts. But, you know, I don't have to do anything with it. I can kind of grieve it. I can process it. I can think about it. I can let it actually kind of come and go because we're talking maybe 90 seconds is the length of an actual emotion. And so that is something that can be navigated, but we watched maybe a lot of people probably watch the grownups in their lives, you know, avoid emotions or fly off the handle anytime they felt one. And so they all of a sudden become, you know, this, this kind of specter, you know, this thing that is so much bigger than what they actually are. And so befriending them, you know, kind of creating a relationship in which, and this is where the curiosity and the pause helps, because if we realize that just like our thoughts, everything we think isn't true, everything we feel doesn't have to be acted on. And so when, you you know, your mom says something that kind of, you know, is prickly or that like you feel like you need to react to, like you have more control around the way you can respond to it because you have more control over your environment right now. You have the ability to kind of set up a psychological boundary against what she says, where you can really like take that thing in that she said, that barb that mothers, you know, are so good at and say like, is this true? And is this about me or is this about her? Because you can just take it in without it actually disabling you or, or even, you know, leading to the disconnection of the relationship, which is what we fear, you know, that, that you fear that if you, you know, don't kind of comply or, you know, that, you know, I don't know what your fears are specifically with your mother in terms of the way, you know, you respond versus not respond, but most children, you know, are dependent on their caregivers. And so they learn the kind of surest path to approval and very quickly learn, you know, what is going to get them, get their needs met and what's going to get in the way of that. And so that's the strategy that gets employed over and over and over again. And when we're grownups and we're still doing that, and like you say, the minute you go back home, it's like you snap right back into those roles and right back into the past as if, you know, you're still 12 years old and you have a much wider range of choices now than you did when you were 12. And part of the choice comes from the pause, comes from that conscious reflection of what am I feeling and do, you know, how, what, are, what are my choices for how to respond to this? It's where our real power lies. That's great. I'm going to attempt that this holiday. I was just going to add to that, that like having a kind of arsenal of self-care in your, you know, in remembering that the holidays are triggering for so many people and that taking care of yourself is extra important. And that's not just, you know, face masks and the the kind of thing we think about, we hear the word self-care, but it's your emotional self-care too. You know, if you know that things get super, super heated or that like, you know, you've done the kind of pause and the name it to tame it kind of strategies. And it's still just really hard to not, you know, lash out and say something back like, all right, you know, is this, is it time to, to take a walk and then come back and advocate for yourself, you know, with a really productive conversation, you know, that, that you need, you know, a little bit more emotional bandwidth to be able to have. So Megan, is this 
Do you speak with a lot of your patients about this sort of thing? Definitely around the holidays. <laughs> Definitely around the holidays, right? Right. Yeah. It gets, I mean, we, we can grow and grow and grow and then go back to our families of origin and feel so small and so stuck. And so it's incredibly common because that's like the biggest dragon to slay because our family of origin was who kind of created, you know, our hot buttons, you know, like the things that are our core wounds. And so because they're the ones who, who kind of created them, it's all, they're also the ones that can really trigger them the most. And so being especially patient with yourself when if you are trying to make some strides in your own emotional regulation and the way that you're processing things or the way that you are showing up in relationships, having a therapeutic relationship or relationships with friends where like you're, you're both kind of on, you know, a self-awareness journey and you're trying things out in different ways, you know, to kind of have what are called corrective experiences, you know, that might be a easier place to start than to immediately go back to your family and to kind of try to shift these long held patterns, you know, that are real calcified and very durable because they're very emotionally charged. And they have the power to kind of send you back to an emotional state that is disempowered. If the listeners wanted to follow you and just hear you speak about these sort of things and other issues that we go through as human beings, how can they do that? In some world, I envision being kind of out there more with my writing and with some of my kind of therapeutic frameworks. I I definitely have other clinicians and, and other people in the mental health world that I adore and that I that I value in terms of, you know, a lot of what we talked about today. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking of some of the big somatic pioneers like Vander Kolk and Peter Levine and Dan Siegel. And I can send you links to some of, the, of these books that, you know, have been incredibly meaningful to me in terms of, I mean, this is, again, I'm a therapist. And so the pitch to encourage people to develop a therapeutic relationship, you know, is, is always going to be there. And that's not just, you know, to keep me relevant, my job relevant, but because it really is kind of second to none to be able to work out these kinds of relational dynamics with another person, you know, that is the kind of catalyst for healing. I have a small presence on Instagram, but I can't say that I'm very active. I, you know, I give a lot to my private practice and find myself as a highly sensitive person, you know, to need, you know, some boundaries around how much I'm putting out there that isn't specific to, you know, the the one-on-one relationships that I have. So probably not the answer you were looking for, but that's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) So basically they can't, that is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's right. But obviously there are people and therapists that, you know, have similar kind of frameworks and modalities that I do. And so that's kind of the direction that I would look. And so much of my work is about empowering the individual. And so I would encourage all of the listeners, you know, to kind of trust themselves more and to trust the wisdom of their body more and to kind of just tune in and and recognize that like their own capacity for healing, you know, has always existed. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. This has been a So Mind Boggling production. Follow along at So Mind Boggling on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.